Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author and distinguished journalist, Julia Flynn Seiler. Her work has been honored as a finalist for both the James Beard Award and the Gerald Loeb Award. She has also been a longtime contributor for the Wall Street Journal. And she's recently written a book entitled The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown, about the trafficking of women from China to America in the last part of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. Julia, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. I'm delighted to be here. So your book really kind of covers a time in history when the trafficking of Chinese girls was rampant. And your your book says you encountered what was once a safe house for rescued girls while you were working on a ghost story. And the place obviously had a deep effect on you. So what was it about the Cameron house that, that really grabbed you the most? Um, I was interested in general in a, a book set in San Francisco. And one mm-hmm. of the challenges as a, writing a history of San Francisco is uh, the fact that the 1906 earthquake and fires destroyed so much of the records of the city up until that time. Uh, but I did come across a house which is still standing today on the edge of Chinatown, uh, now named Cameron House, that was founded in the 1870s as a refuge for Asian women who've been trafficked to America and forced into prostitution. And it was run by uh, a group of missionaries, uh, mm-hmm. women, and they kept fantastic records and case files of these women uh, who, who found their freedom in this home. And so it was a, a, way, a way, in a sense, to tell a history of the city, the larger city and the larger West, as well as a very to me, inspiring story about girls and women who uh, found their freedom and changed their lives uh, by coming through this, this safe house. Most definitely. And, and so slavery, when this happened, slavery had only been illegal in the United States for just a few years, which is, was really hard to wrap my brain around. <laughs> it just missed a few years. And, and the, the Chinese were still smuggling young girls and holding them as, as, as sex slaves, and they were kind of viewed at an auction very much like African slaves had been. And Ab- Absolutely, Shannon, yeah. That, that kind of blew my mind as well, because the 13th Amendment to the Constitution had been passed in the latter years of the Civil War uh, in the 1860s, yet there were open auctions of Asian girls and women taking place on the streets of San Francisco. And that was one of the kind of shocking reasons I wanted to learn more and find out uh, not only how this could have happened, but also who were the people who saw this and decided Mm -hmm. to take action and fight against it. Sure. And one of those people you mentioned in the book is Donaldina Cameron. And she was, uh, she, she took in girls, she rescued them who had been victims of trafficking, and the, the title of the book actually bears a, a pejorative name for her, The White Devil of Chinatown. Why did some people call her that? Well, she was so effect, effective at disrupting 
the business of human trafficking, that mm-hmm. her enemies, uh, namely the criminal tongs or the gangs that were that were importing uh, girls and women from China into San Francisco and other cities along the West Coast, they gave her the name the White Devil. And the mm-hmm. reason they gave her this name was they wanted to scare uh, the girls they considered their property from running away to the home. So mm-hmm. it was it was uh, meant very intentionally, and the nickname stuck. Um, and of course, it's a racial invective. It's an ugly name. Um, but on the other hand, many of the girls and women who passed through the home over the years, and by my count, is somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000. Uh, girls and young women came through the home between the 1870s and the 1930s. Uh, some of them called her mother or low mo. Uh, and one of the most poignant things I found were, was um, Mother's Day cards uh, that were sent to her from former residents of the home from where they had located around the U.S. as well as back in China. Um, and thanking her for her work. And she, of course, is what the home today is named, the person who the home today is named after, Donaldina Cameron, is the reason that uh, the home is now known as Cameron House in San Francisco. And it's a very vital social services agency in the city. Definitely. And uh, it sounds like the, the conditions for those who were trapped in the sex trade were terrible. Um, They were literally held captive and used as sex slaves. And if they got sick, they got discarded. And literally, I I read this in the book, they they threw their bodies out into the street. And that is, uh, to not have that much respect for human life is is unfathomable to uh, us now. Um, But there's still trafficking that's happening now, both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So what do you draw any parallels between the trafficking that's happening now and what was happening over a century ago? Well, um, there are a number of parallels. And you, yes, trafficking is actually rising um, mm-hmm. in our country and elsewhere. And uh, in the 19th century, there was a correlation between kind of economic and political chaos going on in China with the trafficking from China to the United States. And the irony during that time was that the more uh, immigration restraints that were uh, imposed on the country through con- by Congress and, and state legislators, the more um, lucrative the trafficking business became to ah, the criminals yeah. who were running it. And mm-hmm. I think that that is also true today. And so you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed in 1882, which ban Chinese laborers from entering the country for 10 years. So I would imagine that uh, when that act was passed, the traffickers became became wiser, and it, like you said, it became more valuable. And it, it really was a matter of property and ownership. And so explain to the listeners, there, there are some men that would have a woman, they would force her to sign a contract for prostitution, and then they would actually go to court to prove that they had a contract with her, that they basically owned her, even though slavery was illegal. So how did that happen? Well, prostitution was not illegal. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was not illegal through the 19th century um, in the United States. And these were 
contracts often signed by the women with their thumbprints, since in some cases the women were from very poor families and were illiterate. Yeah. And these were essentially labor contracts saying, I give up my body for a period of often be three or four years in return for uh, trans- the cost of transporting me from China to San Francisco, so forth and so on. Um, and yeah, these, these contracts, we do have copies of these contracts. And uh, they, the owners did indeed try to enforce them in courts or at least use them as a guise to disguise, which was really forced prostitution. And um, one thing that's so important to remember is you, you mentioned that the, the conditions in which these trafficked women um, were held under were so barbaric. Uh, the life expectancy of a trafficked woman in the late 19th, early 20th century was about four years in San Francisco. I mean, it was brutal. If they didn't die from disease, they might die from sexual abuse or, or something else. Right. Um, and uh, so the terrible irony is that those contracts, many of the girls and women would not even live out their contracts. Um, if we, you know, if 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 those indeed those uh, four-year lifespans are accurate, right. which I oh, think that's so sad. That's so sad. And you tell the story in your book of a woman named Jin Ho, who was the first girl to seek refuge to escape forced prostitution. So let's let's tell a happy story. Tell me tell me about Jin Ho. Sure. So uh, she was a young woman who had been trafficked and forced into prostitution, and she was so desperate that she. Uh, ran away from her trafficker and threw herself in the San Francisco Bay hoping to uh, commit suicide. And some um, officials at the time saw her and rescued her from the bay, pulled her out. And uh, she said, bring me to a Jesus man. And so they indeed brought her to a, uh, a white missionary man mm-hmm. who was working in Chinatown and who was fluent in Chinese. He had been working in China before he came to San Francisco. He was a Methodist missionary and he was able to uh, not only comfort her but provide refuge for her. And as a result, she really changed her life. And she was the first um, of uh, the trafficked women to take uh, to take refuge that we know about in one of the safe houses that was set up. And there were actually two two safe houses, first set up by the Methodists and then by the Presbyterians uh, in Chinatown to address this, what they considered social injustice, right. and to try to help these very vulnerable women. And you, and you tell another story about a, a woman named Atoy or Achoy. I think you said she, she was known by both who was Mm -hmm. feisty and who was a prostitution by choice, who would Mm -hmm. take men to court who had tried to cheat her out of money. So tell a little little bit about her. Well, she's a very, very famous character in 19th century San Francisco history Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite characters in the book. And uh, she was a famous figure, famous for her beauty, but more importantly for, as you mentioned, her feistiness and her willingness to... Uh, to fight it out in court. And she was repeatedly in court. Uh, for one one instance was a case where men tried to cheat out, her out of money that she felt she was owed, and I believe she won that case. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the wonderful happy ending to Atoy's story 
is that she uh, got out of uh, prostitution. She ended up, uh, before she did that, actually running uh, brothels and instead married a man, uh, moved to moved south of the city, and I think she lived till she was almost 100 years old. So, That's which is an astonishing, and it's a very important story uh, because it shows uh, also agency in that uh, the, the the young girls who were trafficked uh, had barriers to their freedom that included the fact that many of them did not speak English. They had no social or economic resources to fall back on. Their families were very, very far, far away. They were vulnerable. Uh, but Atoy is a, a, an example of an entrepreneurial woman who changed her fate. And, sure, sure. And, 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 and marriage was... A really, really a great escape for these girls, provided that they uh, were marrying a, a kind person who who loved them. Because once they married, they no longer had any legal uh, ownership quote right to the people who had enslaved them, who would try mm-hmm. to come and, um, and and get them from these from the safe house. Uh, so how how did they go about hiding themselves from the traffickers? Well, once, once the girls and women reached the safe house, the safe house's windows were barred from the outside mm-hmm. so that people couldn't smash the glass to get into the girls and women. There was a doorkeeper, essentially a guard, to keep uh, people out who shouldn't have been there. Uh, and then the young girls and women were always escorted through the streets of San Francisco's Chinatown because mm-hmm. there was a constant threat of the traffickers trying to grab them back. So they were very protected when they were in that environment. And as you mentioned, you know, one of the pathways out of the home was through marriage. And the safe house became almost an informal marriage bureau. Uh, and San Francisco during those years was the capital of, of Chinese America. It was the biggest city and had the biggest population of Chinese Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, for many years, uh, there was a, 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 made, a very significant gender discrepancy, many more Chinese men than women uh, in the West and in many parts of America. And they knew that there were single women in this home. And so uh, one of the discoveries that I've documented in the book is the diaspora of families that came out of what is now Cameron House Mm -hmm. and how many lives were possibly affected um, through these marriages. I mean, for example, if we look at two to 3,000 women passed through the home in seven decades from 1870s to the 1930s, let's assume that a good portion of those women married and had children of their own, and now it's their grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are living. I mean, that's tens of thousands of people whose lives were affected by effectively a very small group of activists who tried to do something and fight uh, human trafficking. Definitely, yes. And that that is, um, it it just goes to show how good intentions can can really take you far. And so the Mission House became like a a legit nonprofit with a board and they were fundraising. And uh, so, I mean, this was definitely starting with some good intentions and then coming into being basically a a, a do-good enterprise. Mm-hmm. And you, you tell the story of Bessie, is it Young? 
J-E-O-N-G, okay, um, who, who fled an arranged marriage. So she had not been forced into prostitution, uh, but she had nowhere to turn. Her, her family was forcing her to marry someone. And so Cameron took her in, and she went on to become a real champion for these women too. So tell me about her, her journey. Oh, yeah, she's uh, oh, such a remarkable character. So she ran away to the home uh, at age 15 uh, while her brothers and father got on a boat to China without her. Um, and she was a remarkably adept student. And Cameron and the other staffers of the home quickly realized how bright she was. And they helped support her uh, getting an education. Uh, so they supported her through high school, and then she became, uh, she enrolled in Stanford University. They helped her get an extra tutoring when that was necessary. And she became the first Chinese-American woman to graduate from Stanford University. I tracked down her uh, yearbook photo from the 19, class of 1927. Uh, but even beyond that, she went on to medical school, uh, became a pioneering Chinese-American doctor, in the uh, late 1920s, early 30s, and wanted to give back to the home that had proven so important to her, the course of her life. And so she came back and worked as a doctor for the younger residents of the home. By that time, there were so many girls and young women coming through there, including some of whom who had babies, that mm-hmm. there, there was a satellite operation opened up known as the Baby Cottage. And so Dr. Bessie Jung helped uh, help care for those um, the 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 uh, residents of the baby cottage. That is, but how did you find all of this information? I mean, this book is jam packed with with very detailed information. What kind of records did you use to, uh, to to? It must have been an extremely arduous process. Well, it took about five years, uh, mm-hmm. and I visited archives across the country and even overseas. So I did most of my work at Stanford and at UC Berkeley's wonderful Bancroft Library. Um, And I also visited the Highland Archives in Scotland to track down Donaldina Cameron's family's uh, origins. Oh, wow. Um, But most, you know, the most unusual place that I did my research was Cameron House itself, which has got all of those private case files Mm-hmm. still in its possession. And I worked very closely with the former executive director of the house uh, who organized those files. And um, we worked together for years uh, on on this. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'm very, very grateful that they felt comfortable uh, with me as a researcher and as a writer uh, to trust these stories to me. So um, Absolutely. that's how it happened. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you've got photographs, you've got, uh, they, uh, they must have kept really good records, and that's, um, that is really Thank phenomenal. You. Yeah, I, I respect anyone who can take all of that time to take all of that information and then weave it together into a narrative, because, I mean, the book really, it tells a story. It's this building is a character, is the main character, really. And so now that it's it's finished and the, the book is out into the world, what are your feelings about it? Well, it's taken me on a journey that I didn't really expect. Um, for one thing, I've started meeting and speaking at gatherings of people who are currently fighting human trafficking. Yeah. And so as a result of that, I've my eyes have been opened and I've learned a lot about uh, the contemporary scene and how prevalent human trafficking is today. 
Um, for example, I uh, was um, uh, a guest on a radio show in New Mexico with uh, one of the women who heads the coalition there to fight human trafficking. And she said that the average mortality rate of a, a girl or young woman who had been trafficked in New Mexico was six years, which really blew my mind because in the 19th century it was four years. Right. So it's still uh, just brutal uh, for yeah. women forced into this situation. And a few boys, too. That's the other thing is that I focused on the, on the women. And I certainly have learned that uh, boys and young men can be trafficked as well. Most definitely. Yeah, it's a it, it's it's a nasty. I hate to even call it a business, uh, but I mean, but it is. It's I mean, you're you're treating human beings as if they have no value and they have no dignity. And it's um, God bless these people who <laughs> who back then, when it was even more of a risk to to take a stand publicly and to to help people who were. Um, who were in a rough shape. Well, I we're uh, sadly out of time, but Julia Flynn Seiler, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This was great. And the uh, oh, before we go, you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair at the end of the month. Tell me about I that. I sure am. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled. I'm going to be there on Sunday, the 24th of November, 1 p.m. Please come, come uh, meet me there, and I'll be presenting about the book, and we'll I'll be in conversation with another author who's also written about kind of inspiring people who have taken on a social justice issue and made uh, made changes in this world. Oh, that's fantastic. And the, the name of the book is The White Devil's Daughters, The Women Who Fought Slavery in San Francisco's Chinatown. And for all of my listeners, this is Shannon Fisher. I'll see you next time. Thank you, Shannon.